Hello, welcome back to another episode of the DD Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Sarah, joined once again by JM and our newest member, Yara. Hi, Yara. How are you? For our listeners, Yara, why don't you tell us a little about you since it's your first time on the show and we're really excited. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm an independent journalist. Uh, used to have been in the human rights kind of sector for around 15 years now. I uh, was working for the Secretary of the uh, Secretary General in uh, in London. Um, the office is at Amnesty International. Um, and before that, I worked as a freelance journalist a little bit for RT, uh, BBC, uh, The Guardian, uh, mostly freelance, mostly video journalism. And um, yeah, now we're here. Super excited to be here and uh, to have this conversation today. JM, how are you? How have you been? Normal. <laughs> and Shay, who has not been normal, our guest today, Shay Bose, best friend of the show, RT correspondent living in Moscow from Ireland. We're going to talk about all things uh, all things Palestine from the Irish perspective, as well as what the hell is going on in the UK. Um, so, Shay, how are you? How's Moscow? How's the snow? It's snowing already. Yeah, it's snowing. It's cold. It's well, it's not as cold as it's going to get. It's going to get a lot colder, so it gets much colder. But it 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 snows. It's it's wet. It's it's pretty grim. But people here kind of like it. They kind of retreat into their houses now. They light fires and they they do this kind of Danish huga thing. Just they love that. You know, they they like to be inside and the bars and restaurants and place are lovely at this time of the year. So it's very cozy, uh, and I like the snow. The snow is great. It's it's kind of normality winter time snow summer time heat and sun here so it's it's kind of predictable like very little else in in the world of the so has the vibe shifted at all in russia obviously our listeners know that russia is in a lo- prolonged conflict with ukraine but since this next conflict has commenced has the vibe shifted at all i know russians are so so quiet and kind of pensive but have has there what is the general consensus about this conflict in russia well i would say the overwhelming uh, majority of russians would be sympathetic towards the palestinians uh, that's without doubt i mean there's a huge jewish population and cultural influence here and there's been here for for you know, for centuries, of course, Russia has had a huge Jewish population. It's been the center of a lot of radical Jewish ideologies, and it's been the center of huge cultural, Jewish cultural, uh, music, art, you know, uh, also Bolshevism. There was a huge Jewish influence in Bolshevism as well, or vice versa, you could say. It's interesting that the Nazis equated Bolshevism and Judaism as the same thing, basically, in some ways. So, there's a very fond and rich Jewish culture here in Russia. A lot of Jewish food, a lot of Jewish influence in, 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 in Russian culture. Um, but I think the, when it comes down to who the average Russian believes is at fault here about this conflict in what's unfolding in Palestine, it, it would, you know, I'd say it's an overwhelming 70% plus in my view would would believe that it's uh the issue here is the 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 genesis of this problem was the very you know biased creation of the israeli state 75 years ago basically after a prolonged toing and froing by the british and french and various others Uh, i think that would be the 
overwhelming view that this that justice, a just peace in Palestine and Israel will lead to, uh, uh, you know, a viable two-state solution. I think that's kind of it. Of course, it varies. Uh, I was talking to a Jewish uh, friend of mine yesterday um, who, you know, his main thing is that he's worried that people equate Judaism with Zionism or even that, like me, I'm a cultural Catholic, Irish Catholic, you know, so... I have a lot of the traits. I, I I drink like an Irish Catholic. I fight like one. I I get involved in. I get into trouble like a good Irish Catholic. But I'm not religious at all. But a lot of my cultural influences are Irish Catholic influences. The big families, you know, we like we we're passionate people. So there's a lot of danger that people of Jewish heritage with Jewish names are being sort of called you know oh you know you're a zionist or whatever so there's a lot of ignorance so we have to be really careful to take people on the basis of which we find them and there's a huge population here in, in russia who have mixed parentage uh, some jewish families and uh, i think that's really important right now that we don't fall into that trap of of sort of su suggesting that judaism is zionism uh, or you can't agree that the state of israel should exist at all i mean i, I would be concerned about that sort of thinking as well which sort of drifts into the narrative now as the as the tensions and the passions around this brutal conflict are going to really flame up now you have to keep our feet on the ground about you know and be human it's hard to we see i think israel licensing its absolute biblical brutality against innocent people because of brutality that it's telling us was visited against its people so this is a race to the bottom morally but i think in russia Generally, people here are exceptionally, you know, educated politically. It's so strange coming from the West where, you know, if you meet someone who's, you know, tuned into what's happening on a global stage, geopolitically or historically, it's kind of rare. You say, wow, that was really, I got turned on by this person. I met them. We talked for hours about, you know, history. Here, the standard of, of awareness about the global uh, picture is remarkable. It's remarkable. And particularly younger people have, quite smart i'm doing a bit of work with i did a bit of work with a couple of students from uh, moscow state the other day in international relations and they were just remarkably smart young kids um and i think the general sense here is that people are tuned in they understand what's happening with russia on the ukraine thing that it's a bigger picture that the ukraine is merely a stage that stage could have been belarus it could have been georgia it could be any one of the ex-soviet republics it could be the uh, baltic states so people here are remarkably tuned in, uh, completely contrary to what the Western media would tell you. But regarding Palestine, I think the sense is definitely here that uh, the, the Palestinian people have been wronged historically. That's led to the injustice that has fueled radical, uh, violent factions, which have committed, in my view, terrible crimes against individuals, which they shouldn't have done, of course. But I think we have to look past that, unfortunately, to why that happened. Why does Hamas exist? Why did the provisional IRA exist in my country? Why did these radical uh, groups, and they're very different, but why do they exist? And I think See, you're going to you're going to answer all the questions with this one rant. <laughs> yeah, okay. You're going to fire oh, into the IRA. Hey, that's me. I'm going. Bye. Yeah, no, you're coming right into the IRA, and I was like, we're not ready yet. We're not ready yet. Yeah. So I do want to talk about that because that's what I wanted to. We obviously wanted your opinion about Russia, but we need to know the historical perspective of why Ireland um, is willing to 
uh, be loud and always this way uh, in support of Palestine, even in governmental and political on the political stage, uh, socially. So we kind of want to understand for our listeners where that comes from, because I mean, I can remember 2014, 2018, 2020, and Ireland's always one of the first countries to start. Mm -hmm. um, protesting, speaking out, Claire and Mick, all of the above. So when did, did that kind of start? Was it in like, the, was it in the forties, fifties, sixties? Like how did that, how did those two kind of converge? Well, I think Ireland, of course, a, a little snapshot of Irish history. Our, Ireland is a small country in the, in the Republic of Ireland, about five, five and a half million people, I think. Uh, then there's the North of Ireland, which is a territory uh, which most Irish people, and we know this from votes, consider Ireland to be a single entity. We refer to it as Ireland. Uh, but there is a Northern Irish state, which is part of the United Kingdom. So that the genesis of that was the partition. Interestingly, when we talk about Palestine, and this is why I think there's so many connections between the Irish experience and the Palestinian experience. Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, the country I was, I'm from, and and was created by the partition of the island of Ireland. The island of Ireland is an ancient kingdom. It's you know the first settlers in Ireland were you know, over six thousand years ago. The first recorded people. So it's a very ancient culture. And the genesis of our problems uh, with division and with partition began really with the plantation of Ireland under Queen Elizabeth I, who was you know the the chick with the big red hair and the big collar. Let's say okay. Uh, incredible woman, you know, fantastic uh, leader for the English, but unfortunately, um, you know, really, she was kind of the one well, of the engines of the, of the colonization, the early colonization of Ireland, which happened when the Gaelic heartland of Ireland, you know, the uh, the Roy, Royal Ireland was Ulster, uh, that province of Ulster in the north, and the British targeted that for resettlement for essentially genocide in many ways you could say they drove out the native irish they settled the land there was huge amounts of brutality during those first plantations uh, land was given to protestant uh, scots loyal scots to come as adventurers and soldiers during that plantation the native irish were driven west of the river shannon onto the onto the west coast very tough landscape so that was the beginning really of the plantation of us so the english first came to ireland in uh, in about uh, in the 12th century about 1110 the adventus they were invited into ireland so but no ireland had never been under consistent british rule or english rule um for for hundreds and hundreds of years and we went through various phases of colonization and settlement the normans um uh, which became assimilated became as irish as the irish themselves made them the old irish the english guys but but our experience of division, conquest, and dispossession is very linear almost with the Palestinian experience. And I suppose in Palestine, people, um, they don't have many friends, you know? Uh, so when somebody is willing to raise your flag and raise their voices for you, uh, you know, you would adhere to that very quickly. And I suppose during Ireland's struggle for independence in the uh, from, say, 1798 right up until 1916, when the, the last of the revolutions occurred in Ireland, really, leading to a brutal civil war where we fought among ourselves because one part of the country, one side 
the treaty, pro-treaty side wanted to accept the treaty the English had offered us to carve off the top of the country and let the Protestant uh, uh, ancestors of the British people, who consider themselves British, and part of our deal, which is something I'd like to talk about, to, to make the killing stop in Ireland, uh, it hasn't stopped the hatred and the division, but the killing has stopped in Ireland. Part of that was us agreeing that uh, the legitimacy of those uh, Protestant British people in the north of our country, 90 miles away from where I grew up, 90 kilometers away from where I grew up, basically, at the border, which now doesn't exist. And all of this was about us accepting the sort of legitimacy of the of, of their Britishness. It was also about the British accepting they had no strategic or selfish interest on the island of Ireland. So it became about people. And I think that's what this is going to come down to in, in Palestine. So you can see those similarities that you know, mirror each other in many ways. And this is a very emotional thing for people in Ireland. Irish people are very attached to the land. They're attached to culture. Land is very important to Irish people. Um, the physical ownership of land. Because we suffered under the British, the probably, and mostly the English, but late, later the British, the penal laws, we suffered the most brutal oppression and dispossession and violence and starvation under the British, I think, really, I don't think it's it's unrivaled that any nation really survived long enough to suffer long enough uh, as we did under the British, maybe 800 years at various times, peaks and troughs of real brutality. So land and the ownership of land and the definition of that has become almost sacred to the Irish psyche, you know? Um, I remember my when I was a kid, we grew up in the city and this is a little little story which just popped into my head we grew up in the city of dublin my dad worked in the in the gas company so we were we were kind of city dwellers small city but a city nonetheless and two of my cousins came up from leitrim which is in the northwest of ireland it's the least populated part of the country it's 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 very sparsely populated and two of my cousins were just kids they came up to our house in dublin in the in suburbia and they looked out the back window of the house and one, one looked up to the other and said where's their land he says you know, because we just had a tiny little garden. <laughs> and he looks at the other guy and says, Uncle Eddie, my dad, Eddie, Uncle Eddie, where's your land? Like, what's wrong with you, man? You know, you've no land, you know? So this attachment to the land, the physical... I don't know if anyone's seen the, the great Irish movie, The Field, um, which sort of is... It's a beautiful film. If You, you should check it out. Um I think Richard Harris is in it, and it's a, it's, a, it's a play by John B. Keane, I think, a Kerry playwright. It's a beautiful uh, story about this attachment to that, how important it was through the famine, through the oppression, through the dispossession. Like the Irish were only allowed, uh, English landlords, British landlords stole the land from us, rented it back to us in tiny tracts that were just allowed, just enough to have subsistence. So when we finally shook off the English, the idea that land could be in personal ownership again, really meant something. I, I've seen that in the Palestinians too, the idea of these ancient olive groves, this ancient territory that someone would come and say, because some ancient book tells me this is mine. Uh, some dude with an American accent driving a big Jeep drives into your village and says, this is mine. We connect with that, that idea that, you know, might isn't right. We, we understand that. And we struggled through centuries and centuries of terrible deprivation, like millions of people died. And we're a small nation, but we we were kind of immunized against this suffering. So suffering is also 
hammered into forged into the Irish psychology as well. And all of that sort of makes us look to the Palestinians and say, we, we, we know we, we, we connect with these people, even though most people in Ireland are Catholic and, you know, would have traditionally been suspicious of Islam, maybe, you know, and stuff. We can over, we can look through all that, the color difference, the, you know, we're different race races of people, but these things that bond us together, these trials of, oppression and bondage almost really are it connects with Irish people uh, so I, I wanted to ask you Shay um, a question about the free speech legislation that you know back in May there was a lot of outrage over this piece of legislation I remember Trump and even Elon Musk came out they called it insane said it was going too far um, and there's always this this current debate between you know freedom of speech versus curbing hate speech, when are we going too far? So I'm interested in drawing a little bit of a parallel here with Palestine, um, given that, you know, a lot of people in the West have now associated the Palestinian flag with terrorism outright, um, would advocating for Palestine and Ireland under this, this piece of legislation be potentially considered hate speech? I'm interested in hearing a little bit about that from you. Yeah, well, it's a really good question because I think what's happened in Ireland over the last, say, 10 years has been this dramatic rush to become best in class for the European Union, to become the most liberal. Uh, you know, remember, Ireland, after our independence, was essentially a Vatican statelet. It was brutally operated by this uh, upper middle class uh, who were devoutly Catholic. It was it was almost uh, a religious state. It's hard for people to believe here when I talk to people in Russia. I say, you know, when I grew up, there was abortion was illegal in my country, divorce was illegal, contraception was illegal. Uh, women, when they uh, married in the seventies, when I grew up uh, in Ireland, after they married, if they worked in a state job, they had to leave their job and go home and look after their kids for the husband. Rape was legal in marriage. Um, so it was this really ludicrously uh, policed state by the Catholic Church. Now, the Catholic Church exercised its huge power through uh, the media. It also exercised it through healthcare because the Irish state, when it was young, was very poor. And the only people that could provide healthcare to the, to the population, which was a hugely rural population at the time, was the Catholic state through the religious orders, the nuns, the priests. Education was provided by the nuns and priests, and they gave they did educate people. Where I was educated by the Christian Brothers, which was mm -hmm. like the SS, you know, at, at times. It was very rigid, very tough, uh, but it was mixed in with this nationalism, which is really interesting too. We used to sing the national anthem, we used to sing in Gaelic, we used to sing rebel songs on one hand, and then we'd say, Could you do could you do that right now? Um, <laughs> What would you like to hear? Something in I just want to get a bottle of whiskey. I have one over here. Ray McGovern sung for us the other day, so it's your turn. I can sing. I can sing anything you like, but just let me get a couple of whiskeys on. <laughs> but I mean, you, you had this sort of real um, dramatic shift in that in maybe beginning from the late 80s into the 90s. These scandals started to break about the Catholic Church. Um, it was like, it was also... The Catholic Church was banned in Ireland, okay? So through the 16th, I think 17th and 18th centuries, it was illegal to practice the Catholic faith. You could be killed for it. 
you used to, people used to have to be educated in things called hedge schools by priests. So the very identity of Irishness became very close to the identity of Roman Catholicism. It was an act of rebellion to be a Catholic. Uh, priests were killed. Priests fought in the revolution in 1798, guys like uh, uh, Father Murphy and Wexford. They were warrior priests. They're almost like these um, hospitaller knights. These guys were very tough. And that happened in the 70s as well. There was plenty of Irish Catholic priests who fought for and essentially raised funds for and were senior ranking people in the provisional IRA when we were fighting the British in the north. That also pertained. But you can see these strands. It was quite a radical society. And that reflex to re-embrace the Catholic Church as a, a fundamental part of Irish uh, identity was one, a reflex of this, you know, this British oppression of that uh, as well. So there's also a parallel with that in Palestine. There's a parallel with that in how the Americans and British totally destroyed the, the Middle East when they, beginning, in my view, with the overturn of Mohammed Massadi's legitimate government in 1954, they destroyed this man, they destroyed his government, which was on the basis of him wanting to nationalize oil. So British Petroleum, MI6 and CIA destroyed Iran. They then put the Shah in power, who was a brutal maniac. That brutal maniac was overthrown by a radical Islamic uh, government, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini, and he had the Islamic Revolution. So it's quite clear to me who created the British or the, uh, the radical Islam in the Middle East. It wasn't the Muslim population. It was uh, a reaction. And that was very much the reaction in Ireland post-independence for us. When Ireland was divided, the six counties in the north went to the Northern Irish state, which was an apartheid pro-British statelet. It was a brutal anti-Catholic, anti-Irish statelet with very little rights for Catholic Irish people who were a, a large minority. Uh, and this statelet was created. Uh, the Republic of Ireland was created, which was a, a state dominated by the Catholic Church and an elite sort of upper middle class who had worked for the British, by the way, prior to the, um, you know, the collapse of the British project in Ireland because of the civil war and the revolution. They, don't, they just basically just painted the pillar boxes and the post boxes green, they were red, just changed things around a bit. And we had the same kind of arist political aristocracy in Ireland, many people would agree. I, I think that's the case. So as you can see, all of those strands lead to, lead to reflexes. And I think when you're talking about Hamas, and you're talking about the IRA, you're talking about freedom of speech, and to get back to your question, why did we so aggressively embrace liberalism in Ireland in the last 10, 15 years? Legalizing, uh, being the first to legalize, uh, I think, gay marriage and uh, we legalized divorce and abortion. These were all referenda, by the way. They were all put to the people because we're a constitutional republic, which I think is a great thing. Mm -hmm. Our politicians can't just say, oh, we're joining NATO tomorrow. <laughs> no, yeah. no, you, no, you're not. So we voted for all these things. We voted for this liberalization. Um, in Ireland, I mean, obviously abortion, um, divorce, I mean, I think they're, they're rights of the individual and I don't think the state should police that. I don't agree. Even if I don't agree with abortion myself personally, I don't agree that I should be able to tell a woman what she should do either. But that's my personal view, but my personal view is irrelevant. But prior to this, my personal view, if I was the Minister for Health, meant you, you would go to jail if you had an abortion in Ireland, okay? So this is insane. But then we had the radical embracing of uh, homosexual um, liberalization, homosexuality. So I think we were the first to, uh, to legalize gay marriage and adoption for gay couples. 
And this was all feeding into a new European uh, idolatry, in my view, you know, that we adored Europe. Europe was the cure for all our ills. And Ireland was a relatively poor country. And it did get a lot of assistance, fiscal assistance from the EU uh, when it was the European community, which I think it should have stayed as an economic union rather than a political union. That's another day's work. But Ireland aggressively engaged with this new liberalism. Uh, we have a gay prime minister, uh, one of the first openly gay prime ministers in the world, I think, uh, who actually came out in support of the Palestinians and called for a ceasefire. I think it was very noble and brave of him to do that, as did our president. So yeah, I, but your president is always like he can't miss your president. <laughs> your president is always on the right side of things. I don't know yeah. where that guy came from. Yeah. If Aria could pull up like a picture of the Irish president, he's like um, Yoda. He is actually yes, a human Yoda. He's like a, a little people hobbit. say he's about five thousand years old. He's he, lives so... in a small, he lives in a small grass-covered hill. He looks like a hobbit. He's adorable. He is. He's a great man. He's a great socialist. And he's prone to telling the truth, which is really dangerous if you're a politician. But in Ireland, when we elect a president, he, you know, people say, oh, he shouldn't say anything. But he's he untouchable. They can't remove him. Right. That's he signs all the legislation. So he's been very good. But just to go back to this hate speech legislation, I think this is a, a final overreach. We've had big problems in Ireland with health care, housing. This state has failed in Ireland, in my view, in many ways, if if looking after your sick and educating your kids and safe streets, all the metrics by which my view of functioning society should be measured uh, have collapsed in Ireland. Healthcare, housing, we have terrible crises in those areas and in social policy, suicide, drug addiction, alcoholism. Ireland is a society in trouble. But on the other side of the coin, as far as on the on the EU sort of scorecard, when you hold up, you know, the, the, the famous one of, you know, refugee terrorist sort of scorecard. When you hold up the scorecard for Ireland as a progressive state for the EU tick box, you know, oh, we liberalized gay marriage. Two men can have a baby. Uh, you know, we have the biggest gay pride parade. Our prime minister's gay. It's a very Trudeauite reality. Whereas on the other side of the coin, Ireland's become a quite dangerous place to live. It's become quite depressing. Uh, there's no real hope for people here who graduate. They leave. So I think that's really important. I think this hate speech stuff is really essentially an, the, an overreach here where we're saying you can't challenge anybody. I was involved in a big news story about the prime minister who happened to be gay about corruption. And I revealed that he had handed a document worth a quarter of a, a, a billion euros to uh uh, somebody who he shouldn't have done uh, during a negotiation and it was denied but then it was accepted and then there was a criminal investigation into this guy for a year and a half all along through that it was published that this was a homophobic attack on him because uh, so the, the the deployment of sexuality as a shield from investigation was very at the foremost it was at the for forefront of how people tried to portray this as some sort of far right and of course then there was the russian bullshit that this was the fsb uh, made him give his document to his, his ex-lover's boyfriend or whatever. I mean, give me a break. So the reality is, I think, um, societies go through these reflex shifts, particularly societies that have been so oppressed. It's like post-communist uh, Europe, Eastern Europe. The Baltic states became the most vociferous, uh, uh, you know, Russophobes. You know, they're, they're the, the, the little attack dogs, little Jack Russells, whereas the bigger states can accommodate. Even Germ Russia and Germany, you inflicted the most brutal... Uh, hellish realities on each other for centuries uh, prior to the First and Second World War. They can become almost a single unit economically and culturally. 
whereas the Baltic states, um, uh, you know, almost cherish this Russophobia. We cherished our anti-Britishness for a long time as well in Ireland. And when we let go of that, we needed something else to worship. And this idea of becoming a liberal, um, you know, beacon to the rest of the world, I think slipped into the narrative of very, very, you know, ill-equipped politicians who just want to be popular about something, just want to win a vote. So if we can win a vote saying that we can, you know, a man can be a woman, a girl can be a boy, a fucking cat can be a dog, an apple can be a fucking orange, whatever we can win a vote on, let's mm -hmm. have that vote. While not asking people to vote on whether we're dysfunctional um, in and any other way. Power. In terms of this whole speech um, conversation as well, it's interesting, right? Because there's this conflation of criticism of Israel's actions with uh, being an anti-Semite, right? So any attempts to kind of humanize uh, anyone in Palestine uh, is then equated to, you know, you're an anti-Semite or mm -hmm. anything else, right? And and that then deters uh, constructive discussion about this and, and actual balanced reporting. So it's interesting, right? It ties into this whole free speech versus hate speech kind of conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I think and in Ireland, we had that with in the Troubles, as we call it, the, the sort of guerrilla war that was fought against the British in the North, which was, I think, overtly... Uh, condemned in the south but a lot of aid and assistance came from the south into the north a lot of people uh, supported the IRA's campaign but were scared to say so because of course the southern state very much like uh, Hamas and uh, Fatah on the other side uh, we had the Repu we had the Republican Sinn we had the IRSP with various very radical Republican socialist Marxist groups in the north armed groups some of them were armed by israel some were armed by the americans which is weird right yeah because this huge irish american diaspora norade was probably one of the biggest funders of weapons into the north of ireland funding uh, a guerrilla campaign against the british army which was the uh stalwart ally of american flags. So this very schizophrenic relationship through this period in ireland so we see so many sim similarities between our struggle here to find out who we are. I mean, a, a nation oppressed consistently for hundreds and hundreds of years struggles with its identity. It's like a kid that's kicked around constantly. You're 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 always worried about where you get your next dinner from. So Ireland didn't really get a chance to develop as a country to develop a, in my view, a real identity as an independent uh, state until now. I think we're struggling to do it now, and I think that's part of the conflict narrative that we we've struggled so hard. We've lived with such violence. And the war in the North, which began probably when I was born, just in 1970, 1969, 1970, was the first killings of the uh, the British soldiers uh, that had come initially as peacekeepers into our country. And it went up until 1994 with the terrible bombing in Oma where over 30 people died, and including a pregnant woman. And people just thought, we've enough, you know. And we were very close to peace, but... I think it's all about what people were willing to to give up. It's like, you know, if if you know, it's like you, you got to make decisions for peace, and they're going to always be about compromise. And if you don't bring compromise and a willingness to compromise to the table, you're never going to have peace. So I think Irish, the Irish people were so weary with war, centuries of it, misery and war and oppression. Oppression of the British state gave way to oppression of the Catholic Church. And people were just tired of this grim, grey, ideologically driven uh, oppression. And I think yeah. that moved people towards doing a deal. Let's do a deal. Is people the, were so emotional. 
is there like a natural aversion to Israel for Irish people because it technically started out as a British colonial project? Mm. Well, I don't think there's a national natural aversion to Israel. I think people in Ireland are, you know, quite well educated about Israel. I mean, I wouldn't suggest most of them know what Sykes-Picot is or the Balfour Declaration or the Ottoman Empire, what it, what it was all about. I don't suggest that, but they do understand the basic premise of ju- injustice and the fact that mm-hmm. what's forged in theft and, you know, misappropriation can never be justified as uh, as valid and, and noble. And it will always lead to, you know, it's like the British project in Ireland. It was a project forged in theft and uh, we're bigger than you and we're going to kill you until you agree to bend your knee. And if you refuse to bend your knee, we're going to keep killing you until there's either none of you left or what re- the other hollowed out vacuum will become so desperate that it will police itself in our name. And that's what happened in Ireland to some degree. And that's what the Israelis are hoping to do now. And you got to remember a lot of what happened in Ireland when we had the 1916 revolution, which was a tragically failed gallant sort of almost a greek play where these men uh, who knew they were doomed marched out onto the streets of dublin uh, in 1916 in the midst of the of the second of the first world war where you know hundreds of thousands of irishmen were fighting for the british because the and this is the other parallel between what happened in uh, in israel the british of course had promised the arabs uh, prior to the Arab revolt uh, against the Ottomans and stuff, that come and fight with us, be loyal to us, and we will guarantee you an Arabic state. They also said the same to the Jews, to the uh, to the Zionists. And, of course, Lloyd George, who was the man at the center of our peace treaty, which wasn't a peace treaty to end the British occupation here. It was basically, he said to Michael Collins when he went to London, he said, look, if you don't sign this within, you know, 48 hours, we're going to just, there'll be nothing left of Ireland. There'll be a desert. We will just, there'll be no quarter. We will wipe you out. So... The same thing happened with us as happened with the Arabs. They were told, we're going to fight for us, fight with us, and we will grant you independence. So the Home Rule Bill, which was going to give us independence within the United Kingdom, uh, was passed on the third attempt after big problems with the Northern Protestant groups, uh, you know, mutinies in the British Army in Ireland saying, we're not going to allow these guys to have independence. Home Rule is Rome Rule, blah, blah, blah. Irishmen, who the Irish Volunteers, which was the rebel army here in Ireland or back home in Ireland, consisted of well over 120, 130,000 men. It was well trained. A lot of them were ex-British soldiers. There was there was a quite potent force. It was a private army essentially in Ireland, which was saying we are going to uh, exercise our right for freedom. And this was looking like a civil war because in the north we had the Ulster Volunteer Force, which was similarly saying we're going to protect our right to be British. So the British had to do something in Ireland. And what they said was, look, war broke out, which stopped the, impl- uh, the implementation of the Irish Home Rule Bill. So it took the heat off in Ireland. But what they said to the Irish nationalists was, come fight with us. Fight the Germans who are attacking small nations, by the way. They're eating babies in Belgium. Come on, guys, what are you going to do? Oh, they, they ate babies too? Was there any beheadings? They were pickling babies. They were shooting people. Now, the Germans mm-hmm. did commit significant atrocities as they marched through Belgium. They did commit reprisal attacks but this was weaponized of course to get irish people to join up and they did they joined up in their hundreds of thousands over two hundred thousand men fought for the british in irish regiments uh, my great uncle one of them my great uncle john he was killed in uh, uh near Ypres, and he's on the men gate near Ypres. he was killed by a sniper and you know 
And my own dad also joined the British Army. He was in the Irish Guards. He was a guardsman during the collapse of the British colonial uh, project in the 1950s. So the Irish have a sort of a schizophrenic relationship as well with the British when it came. People said, oh, he joined the British Army. There was only one army. We didn't have our own army. We were a colony. We were an integral part mm. of this British project. But the, but the parallels between us and the Palestinians are quite bizarre and strange. Lloyd George, an interesting fact that most people don't really engage with, Lloyd George energetically embraced Zionism, not because he cared about Jewish people or he wanted to solve the problem with the Arabs. He, he did it because he wanted to bring the Americans into the war in, in, in 1917. He didn't really give a shit about this part of the world. Okay, But what he wanted to do was give the very influential Zionist lobby in America uh, uh, a reason to push for America to join the war. And that's a really interesting thing. That's that's verified in many released papers and documents. And it's something that's often missed by people. So this tempting and seduction of the Zionist lobby, the same thing was done with the Arabs, like in Ireland. The Protestants were told, you're going to get your own homeland in the north, a little statelet. You're going to get a, a country in the south. Kick it down the road. And then for the whole 90, late 1960s up until mid-1990s, Ireland was racked by this ethno-nationalist brutal conflict. And the exact same thing has happened now in uh, in Palestine, because this issue was never really solved. The injustice of the establishment of the orange statelet, this Protestant statelet in the north of my country, where Catholics were treated like second-class citizens, routine brutality, routine uh, discrimination, uh, led to a civil rights movement, which turned into a an armed revolt, basically, after the brutal suppression of this civil rights movement, by the way. It wasn't the Irish, uh, the IRA. I didn't come out of nowhere, neither did Hamas. So the yeah. very same dynamics are there. And, I, and so to answer your question, you asked, why would the Irish sit up and go, shit, these guys are just like us? That's why. I think that's, that's really it. We see so many historical parallels. And Irish people are passionate people. They engage on the basis of humanity i think we love our kids we love our families and we see what's happening and it's very difficult to turn away you know it makes it makes perfect sense i mean the history is very very parallel i wanted to talk to you about a little bit about media bias since we did start touching on you know the beheaded babies the obvious equivalents that they're trying to draw with uh, isis right now the bias has just been absolutely insane you're obviously also an investigative journalist um tell me a little bit about about what what you think on all of that and also if we take it to the to the russia ukraine conflict we had a a great conversation that other day with um with the director of ukraine on fire igor Lopatonok, and uh, we were talking with him uh, about the parallels between the the uk ukraine russia conflict and then Israel-Palestine. So can you tell me a little bit about, you know, the media bias that you've seen that's really obvious um, and, and uh, also the parallels that you draw on both, both sides, both conflicts? Yeah. Sorry, it's not me. Oh, sorry, excuse me. So, yeah, sorry about that. Um, yeah. Look, I think, look, the parallels are so obvious to those of us who watch this stuff and are interested. I mean, it's remarkable. I mean, in the in the aftermath of these attacks, which I you got, I condemn the attacks on any civilians, and the people in those kibbutz are civilians. They're women, they're kids, and they're old people. It's in my view that's these aren't legitimate targets for anyone, uh, mm -hmm. and I, I condemn that violence because I think it just is leads to the licensing of further brutality and violence. Okay, uh, whether we understand where it comes from, I don't think we can use it to uh, uh, to license. 
any sort of political view. I just, I think that, and I apply that across the board. Having said that, you know, when you see immediately the Israelis releasing fake audio of two Hamas fighters, apparently, talking to each other, uh, very conveniently saying, yeah, we've just killed a lot of civilians, essentially. It's just utterly ludicrous. That's radically, rapidly pulled down from the internet. Uh, there was this scramble uh, for plausibility as well regarding how over 600 heavily armed uh, Hamas fighters, who was the most scrutinized and surveilled organization on earth. Uh, the IRA were heavily infiltrated by, by MI5, MI6, and by the CIA, and by numerous other intelligence services probably. Watched everybody knew what everyone else was going to do. So I'm still absolutely uh, concerned as to how a battalion-sized group of men in the air, in tunnels, in jeeps, in trucks, arrive at the most surveilled border on Earth, right. which is watched over by, you know, over 100,000 security personnel, the best trained in the world, with the best technology in the world, and just cut a hole in the fence or blow a hole in the fence. They spend a few hours uh, marauding through Israel in the most heavily policed and surveilled territory in the world, and then they come back through the same hole with loads of hostages, and no, nothing happens. Everybody seems to be at the races. I think that there's still questions to be asked about that. And the fact that the Western media isn't even mentioning this stuff to me is interesting. And that's what's piquing my interest in it. Why are they not talking about this? So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing is, is the really clumsy narratives that came out from Israel regarding uh, Hamas brutality. 40 dead babies. We even had the president of the United States if that's what he is, I mean, let's, what do we call this guy? I don't know. He's, you know, he's like, we call him the self-propelled grandfather. Yeah, we don't. Granddad. Yeah, yeah. I've kind of stolen that a bit. So the self-propelled granddad tells the world, and remember in these emotive times, this is 9-11. This is the moment for the big speech. This is when you get the young guys, get their balls out and bang their chests, say straight down to the army recruiting post. I'm going to go, I'm going to kill some Muslims. I'm going to go and fucking tear some, people's hearts out. I'm really getting buoyed up here. Who do you hear? You hear the self-propelled granddad says, I've seen the images of these terrorists cutting the heads off babies, essentially 40 of them. And you kind of say, okay, so you've seen it. So I did a bit of a piece on this for RT actually, and I did a lot of research into it. It turns out that the end, the engine of this whole rumor about the 40 dead babies was a, um, an Israeli reserve officer, uh, who mm -hmm. himself is a settler, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, I think his name is David Ben Zion. What a name, okay? So David Ben Zion, who happens to be a part-time Israeli uh, uh, officer, infantry officer, said uh, this at, to a CBS news crew, apparently, and they say, okay, that's cool. No, we don't need to check that. We don't, you, would you like to see the babies? No, no, we don't need to see the babies. We'll do that later. <laughs> And, and, the, and the interesting part of it was that the hours after the story broke, right, which obviously the damage was already done at this point, the Israeli army confirmed that they had no verified information yeah. uh, regarding that story, but they still, all the Western media ran with it, right? And they Yeah, but the Washington Post also published that Biden had said this. So this is what I think happened, right? This is this is what I really think happened. But that's their playbook that I've noticed, right? It's, it's published. And then, you know, let some time go by, let it, yeah. you know, and then disappear. It. Yeah, then... memory holding it. Yeah, because the damage mm -hmm. is done. And this is what I said. Yeah. So what happened was Biden said this, the Washington Post printed that he'd said it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then the Washington Post story completely disappeared. 
It disappeared. Mm -hmm. We got screen grabs of it. And obviously what happened was somebody in the White House rang the Washington Post and said, get that fucking story down. You're making our president look like a clown. Get it down. You'll never get in the press briefing again. So this disappears. Then the Israelis say, we don't actually have any evidence of this either. So they got the second call. Okay. You didn't see this. But then the Israelis said, we do have it. Five days later, they say, oh, we did see it. And then they were asked, okay, so how did you see it? Well, we saw it on a CBS News report. Oh, my God. So it became legitimized by a rumor started by a Zionist who hates Palestinians. Anyway, and all through this, there are no images. They actually showed a CGI or an AI-generated image of a burnt puppy in a bag, the Israeli mm-hmm. army. So yeah. these guys, you know, how, how, how much of this do we need to see to realize that these guys are lying to us? We know they lied to us anyway to legitimize their brutality and war crimes. We know big empires and their um, uh, proxies do terrible things. And one of the most terrible things is they fuck the truth so that people who don't watch shows like this uh, just suck it up on the drive through narrative. So <clears throat> it doesn't surprise me at all. But of course, where the media doesn't want to talk about how this happened. They don't want to talk about the fact that, um, uh, you know, um, the Israeli prime minister uh, back in 1978 was saying he didn't believe that the, uh, the Palestinians should even have a state. OK, so this is the what's happening in Gaza in the bigger picture is the culmination of a life's work uh, mm-hmm. for Netanyahu. This is a life's work. These are avowed enemies of settlement. And he's, he's talked about how he's manipulated the various accords. I'm not going to go through them all, <clears throat> but... You see the mechanism by which people are distracted and dismayed and outraged, okay? So the duality of this is very much like Ukraine, as Igor said uh, when you were speaking to him. A fundamentally important thing to do is to dehumanize your opponent before you go and tell the world, we're about to break international law. As the Irish president said, they put the world on notice. This is what we're going to do. We're going to hem these people into the open-air prison we've established for them for, for decades, and we're going to tell them to move to one end of the room and we're going to bomb the shit out of the other end of the room. And if we kill them, so what? No one's going to tell us what to do. And even today you had, I think, John Kirby saying that there will be no red lines for Israel. So a country that's killed more children, babies, women and innocent civilians than anyone else, any, any one of their access of evil, the Russians, the Iranians, the Chinese, these monstrous countries that we're meant to be terrified of. Israel has murdered many multiples of any of the uh, uh, alleged uh, victims of Ukraine uh, in Ukraine, the Ukrainian war. Um, of course, there's been civilians have died in Ukraine. That's to be regretted. It's terrible and it's to be condemned. But we don't need evidence when you're on a, you know, it's almost like they're on a coked up narrative of hatred. And this wasn't something that was, uh, was dreamed up yesterday. This stuff doesn't happen overnight. Okay. And when, when you see this, acceleration of dehumanization and very influential people like Shapiro, these repugnant little shits in, uh, and I mean that in the most complimentary way uh, Mm -hmm. to Shapiro, because I could say much worse things about him, but he's a repugnant little shit. And when people like him uh, sort of license this stuff by even querying this, it's either right or wrong to kill babies. It's either right or wrong. You either drift over that line of saying, I absolutely condemn the killing killing of children and civilians. I absolutely condemn it. I'm going to do everything to prevent it. Uh, you either say that or you say it's okay. It's like, do are you a rapist? Well, I only rape at the weekends. 
Yeah, so you're not, raping. No, not just doing raping at the weekends. Um, but you know, that's okay, right? No, it's not okay. Yeah. It's never okay. It's never okay to kill children. But when you know you're about to embark on the greatest affront to international law, humanity, and, and de human decency, which is what we're seeing, an apparent democracy, uh, a key ally of the United States. There's nothing new in the United States, allying and funding and energizing and activating and directing murderous regimes. You know, we've gone from one to the other with Ukraine. But when you're going to do that, you need to control the media. And of course, the, there's a significant control in the media of, pro, of the pro-Israeli mm -hmm. lobby in the States, which you're not meant to say that because that means you hate Jewish people. I mean, one of my favorite uh, media personalities is Jewish uh, in the States, Max Blumenthal. So, wow. like, yeah. so, you know, so these are these are great Jews. These are the most noble Jews. These are like, in my view, the toughest of the tough because they're standing up against this absolute subversion of Judaism as some sort of political uh, ideology. Judaism isn't a political ideology, it's a peaceful religion of, of family and love. And they most Jews condemn the, the unnecessary killing of children in the battle. The idea that uh, second-rate politicians like Kirby mm -hmm. and, frankly, demented halfwits like Biden are telling us that this stuff is acceptable but regrettable. Mm -hmm. That's like you calling the cops, uh, you know, and uh, bringing them into your front room and you see you've stuck a bread knife in your wife's chest and she's still alive. And you mm -hmm. say to the cop, well, I did that. And he goes, well, this is regrettable. It's very regrettable. But, you know, she was kind of asking for it, right? And he's coaching the, the fucking criminal to say, kind of asking for it. You remember that she came over and she kicked around your, you tore up your tie. She kind of fucking, she, you know, but you know, so it's this a is. It's Zionist indoctrination and Islamophobia and both are taught and it leads to where we are today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, and this is the culmination of decades of Islamophobia and, you yeah. know, a, a, an empire based on fear like the United States fueled by the energetic uh, arming of fear in a domestic sense, on a global sense, this huge complex of military industry, this profitable business of war and fear, uh, you need an enemy. And uh, of course, Hamas fits perfectly into this. They're the wrong color. Uh, they're from a dangerous, horrible place where, you know, uh, they, they have this strange religion, Islam. And, uh, you know, they, 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 they eat uh, Jewish babies for breakfast. So this is great. This is open season. You couldn't get much worse. The only thing you could say, <coughs> they're all pedophiles, maybe. That might be the last one. But right now, in the West, you'd be more uh, accepted societally and socially as a pedophile than you would be as someone standing up for Palestine. As some of us who stood for Russia and said... This is not the true story. We tried to tell the reality of what happened in Maidan, what happened in Odessa, what happened in in, uh, um, in the West of Ukraine. This radicalization. You would have been safer as a pedophile in some ways, the hatred and the threats, and the, which are still there. So you must condition your audience, who are very naive in, in, in parts of the West, very naive. It's a Star Wars narrative. Once you tell them initially that they're the good guys, it doesn't matter who the bad guy is. It can be Russia, it can be China. Now it's Hamas. It will be yep. next time. It could be, it could be Black Americans. It could be Chinese Americans. You just don't know which way this roulette wheel of blame will be spun by, as I say, very mediocre uh, politicians. Uh, and then you've got these vile, vampiric cretins like Lindsey Graham, 
uh, and stupid women like Nikki Haley. Uh, uh, so it doesn't take much to, 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 to light that touch paper of ignorance in, in a country mm -hmm. which is determined to, to swallow this bullshit. Oh yeah, it's it's uh, it's been you know repeated in the media for for so long now that Muslims are inherently terrorists. So it created this dichotomy where the Orient is inferior to the rest of the world, and they look at Islam as backwards, dangerous, you know, aggressive, all this bullshit. And then that gives them the green light to come in as the savior to intervene and and commit these horrible atrocities. Right? That's that's kind of their playbook. I've noticed it's, that. Uh, it's the old school playbook, you know. It's it's, it's it. I have a question, um, uh, actually, for you on, on this. Uh, so, can we call armed settlers in Israel civilians? Because, I mean, we, we, we see that they've described Palestinians as these human animals, right? And then, um, just a couple of days ago, both Amnesty and ECAD uncovered these, these horrific covert telegram channels, and there was this sadistic content on them that was being mocked you know the corpses of women and children it was absolutely disgusting it was being cheered on um and this was you know again it wasn't against hamas it was against innocent children and women and there's a lot of evidence that they published in this report so you know there are women and children in gaza right now that are being bombed in their sleep and uh those are civilians can we call people in israel that are armed settlers that were being given arms by Ben Veer the other day in a video publicly, uh, can we call them civilians? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, <clears throat> interestingly, that's an interesting one. I, I kind of spent some time looking through the Geneva Conventions, of which there's, I think, 14 conventions. Uh, the Gen Geneva Conventions are the Geneva Convention well, there was before World War II, then there's the Geneva Convention of 1949, additional yeah. protocol one, additional protocol and the two, Hague and Convention. protocol three. Yes, mm. and so it gets... I think one of those, actually, uh, JM, is interesting in that it says that, if you look at it, you might look this up while we're even on, on here, that civilians can take up arms to defend their property from an invading army and not be treated as competence. I think this, that's in there somewhere. So that might be an interesting one. And maybe there's a loophole for this. But in my view, in the north of Ireland, during the uh, IRA's campaign against the British, or the struggle, the armed struggle, as Republicans would call it, um, a huge part of the pro-British population who considered themselves British were members of the part-time security forces, as they were known in the North. And some of these groups were like the UDR, the UDR, the Ulster Defence Regiment. They were this very dangerous group. It was a regiment in the British Army, but it was like a part-time uh, uh, military unit uh, which was populated by radical pro-British uh, uh, group uh, individuals. Mo a lot of these people were very dangerous. They also shared weapons with killing uh, uh, death squads, which murdered Catholics just purely on a religious basis. They were behind some of the most brutal uh, killings uh, during the Troubles. It was very, uh, very gruesome. Including uh, against including against British soldiers, because just to make the troubles more complicated for our listeners, it was a three-way civil war where there are the Unionists, the Republicans, and the British Army, because the Unionists would sometimes kill the British mm -hmm. Army because they thought the British were being too soft on the Catholics and were thereby doing by what they were doing de facto, protecting mm -hmm. the Catholics and on their side, and the Republicans were, of course, fighting the British, but also the Unionists, and also thanks to British counterintelligence, the Republicans were sometimes fighting themselves. Just mm -hmm. to make it, just to make it easy for our listeners to understand. 
Yeah, so I mean, it is complex, but I think the interesting is that these civilian populations, uh, and remember, people who go as settlers into these areas uh, uh, would be, I think, in my ignorance, okay, I stand to be corrected on this. I think they would be quite radically, uh, they'd have quite radical political views about Israel and Palestine. I don't see a liberal, uh, non-religious Jew uh, saying, I'm going to go and fucking build a house in some uh, Palestinian uh, dude's uh, olive grove and 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 carry an M4 around while I'm bringing my kids to school. I don't. I think these people who who are settlers know that the settlements are are, are very contentious, if not illegal, and. They know that they're going to have to have safe rooms as they did in many of these kibbutzes. They're going to have to live with this threat of, of armed resistance or terrorism, depending on which side of the coin you want to uh, uh, describe it. So it's a very difficult question. But I know one thing for sure, though, that children and uh, elderly women are not uh, combatants. And they, you know, I've seen that they were targeted and have been taken hostage, and that's got to be condemned. But I think it's quite a cynical ploy by the Israeli government to allow these de facto militias, right, let's call them that, evolve in these areas. And they've been responsible for a lot of brutality. I mean, this guy, David Ben-Zion, the guy who came up with the 40 dead babies bullshit, he was also led a riot against local Palestinians, I think, last year as well, if you look into this guy. Mm -hmm. And this guy becomes the engine of a worldwide licensing call. Uh, uh, against Palestinians and against uh, uh, their legitimacy that killed them all. Like I, I saw a very disturbing tweet last night. Uh, this uh, American actor, James... Uh, Spay, uh, can't think of James his name, Woods. James Woods. And he actually said, kill them all, kill the children. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is fucking terrifying to see this sort of ignorance mm-hmm. and dangerous. And this is the culmination, remember, uh, of of this um, propaganda by osmosis. And this is what people have been getting in Europe about Ukraine. And one terrible uh, side effect of this brutal outbreak of violence in the Middle East has been that people have got a small break from saturation propaganda about Ukraine. And it's starting to have an impact that people are starting to go, hold on a second. Uh, yeah, what about Ukraine? What's happened to Ukraine? This great threat to uh, peace civilization and the actual existence of liberal democracy on earth was remember predicated on defending ukraine now ukraine can go fuck itself as far as nato is concerned it seems the uh, absolute defense of freedom and justice is now preoccupied with funding arming and justifying the massacre of fucking thousands of children i mean this is the insane reality of what we're dealing with in a global sense right now and this is what we really our job i think as journalists and people trying to you know, cycle and uh, an anti-narrative based on fact. This is fundamentally important that we highlight this to people. So, well, you, you know, I feel like we heard that a lot about Russia, but we wouldn't take it seriously because Russia is obviously the size of the moon and you mm-hmm. can't kill all of the people in Russia. But now they're saying it with impunity, but Gaza's the size of a postage stamp and one large warhead could devastate yeah, and I mean, I think the thing about Gaza is it's so vulnerable as well. It doesn't have a military. It doesn't have any sort of national resource with which to fight with. But neither did we. And I've said this consistently, and I'll say it now. Every single kid they don't kill will exactly will will will, will fight. He'll fight, and he'll fight, and he'll fight 
with with the most blatant ferocity and he has a right to do that just as the israelis say they have a right to defend themselves these children will avenge their families and their kids and it's a cycle the idea that the israelis think that they're going to eradicate an entire race of people by dishing out this type of biblical brutality uh, it's an affront to their own uh, religion it's an affront to their uh, suggestion that they're a liberal democracy and an island of uh, uh, what's the word they, they, they portray themselves as this island of liberalism democracy and freedom in the middle east these people are acting like organized fucking killers now this is this is the deployment of american weaponry against babies and children and it's not just once it's not just twice it's we don't give a shit what the international community says because america says we don't have to give a shit because once big brothers out there uh, on the aircraft carrier uh, they're just going to say go in there they did it in sabra and shatila in uh, those massacres if people want to look them up uh, israeli proxies massacred people too and the americans looked the other way uh, the Americans looked the other way when Idar, Tornado, and other nationalist groups cut the throats of Russian prisoners of war. They do it uh, when they ally themselves with various radical Islamic factions uh, against Bashar al-Assad. Th- th- this is nothing new, but it's just on a macro scale. And what they're hoping for is that the torrent of horrible imagery will become so offensive to people that they'll stop looking, turn the other way, and they'll be able to get the job done. So this is yeah. a a gift to the Zionist engine, which is propping up Netanyahu, remember. So the bigger picture geopolitically is Netanyahu's reign or legacy looked like it was going to be one of great failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that you'd see Israeli riot police beating the shit out of Jews carrying the flag in their hundreds of thousands in protest in Israel was unheard of. And in the midst of all this and the collapse of this huge legacy and Netanyahu is a very intelligent man he's a very well-read man he's a very intelligent person and he's a masterful uh, manipulator of of narrative and agreement and people should understand that he is by no means a foolish person it's strange to me that an army essentially can walk across this border at this time into this narrative and suddenly everything is deflected uh, towards the eradication of a problem that the Israelis and people like Netanyahu have said, it's an eradication of a problem. This is the Palestinian problem. These are people. These are. Uh, this is a gift to radical Zionism. It's a gift. It's a gift. And I think we need to also be looking a bit more deeply at uh, qui bono for this whole horrendous affair. Who's going to benefit? Uh, d- does it give America the big sponsor of the Israeli state? an opportunity to tighten a noose around Iran? Does it give America an opportunity to increase its military presence in uh, less uh, friendly or or more friendly Arabic states uh, like Jordan? Does this allow uh, America to uh, uh, increase pressure on Russia through its relationship with Iran? Does it also, which is something I've written about recently, does it, and I think it absolutely does, does it license and allow America to reverse out of the shit show that is Ukraine? Well, nobody's fucking looking. And I think this is remarkable. So I think you got to zoom out. And I'm saying this a lot at the moment. I know it's a very, the world becomes a very small place when you see these children suffering. It's terrible. But I think we also have to zoom out and say, why is this happening? Why? How can it be happening? Why is it happening? And I think certain things then fall into place. And we understand how the people who told us literally a month ago that the very existence of liberal democracy and freedom in Europe was under threat that Vladimir Putin was going to invade every country on the continent as soon as 
Ukraine fell. Now, it's just the switch has been turned. Ukraine is Ukraine can look after itself. This much vaunted heroic charge of the light brigade, the Ukrainian offensive. The Russians are on the offensive now. The Russians have, are surrounding Avdivka. They're you know it's a brutal battle, but the Russians are actually uh, you know capturing territory on a daily basis. They're liberating territory, uh, and and this is the reality of what's happening uh, in Ukraine. And it's very convenient that the whole world is looking. Uh, uh, you know, across at the Middle East, and a good guy, bad guy, Star Wars. So this is Star Wars. One was uh, Biden's uh, revenge, you know, against evil Putin. So we didn't even get to watch the end of that movie, and we were rushed into another cinema for uh, Star Wars Two, which is let's take on evil Hamas. You know, Star Wars Three could be uh, off. We go to Taiwan, where we will watch China probably uh, completely fucking eviscerate. Uh, any American force that tries to stop them taking what America accepts is Chinese territory. America accepts this is China. They don't think it's someone else's country, but they're going to send them Abrams tanks now and anti-ship missiles and all this fucking insanity. So from Afghanistan, sand in your shoes from Afghanistan into Ukraine, uh, you know, 20 years in Afghanistan, uh, $3 trillion, thousands of dead Americans, hundreds of thousands of people. You leave absolute shit show behind you, famine, absolute destruction, and you leave $8 billion worth of weapons for the guys you came to overturn. From there, you go into Ukraine to the most corrupt country in Europe, uh, which the State Department said was a dysfunctional, a non-state in 2019. Uh, corruption in the judiciary, extrajudicial killings, murders, executions, torture in, uh, in eastern Ukraine. We know all this, and they fund this. It's falling on its ass. Where are they now? They're licensing, funding, and supplying weapons to massacre children and women on a scale nobody has seen since the Nazis uh, uh, rolled through uh, parts of Ukraine in in, uh, in the 1940s. We haven't seen this scale of killing of civilians by any state or any non-state actor in decades and decades and decades. And it's been funded by uh, uh, the biggest military power on earth, they say, America, and by its its local policeman. And there's no way they're going to draw any red lines. So you see this insane roulette wheel of U.S. foreign policy. If U.S. foreign policy was a job applicant, you wouldn't let him park his car in the fucking parking lot. As soon as you saw that guy coming up the street, you'd call the cops, you know. Uh, but yet, what, what I find remarkable is how eagerly people buy into this narrative that we're the good guys. I think it's also part of the reflection of how morally vacuous we've become in the West. We've forgotten how to believe in ourselves, our own um, strength and will and the way to think. This drive through narrative, this cheap ideology that someone's going to tell me how to think and I'm going to be more than happy to bend over and take it because that makes me a good person. I think because we've become so morally vacuous and unintelligent and so offended by educating ourselves or maybe having to say, you know what, I was wrong. Yeah. I, I, I was wrong. I don't hear people say that anymore. And the man who can't change his mind can change nothing. And that's exactly what the politicians want. The man who can't change his mind can change nothing. And that's exactly where they fucking want you. I mean, look at this JFK or RFK guy. He's just like the rest of them. Straight onto the fucking bandwagon to uh, bootlick for Israel. They're killing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of babies, children. It's it's absolutely abhorrent. Nobody can stand with Israel while they do this. It's just morally abhorrent. 
So the battle is with really now, how do we, how do we keep shouting? How do we make sure that we're still heard? We still, you know, fight and argue for humanity because I think we're really at the bottom of the barrel regarding this stuff. Now, I've, I can't remember or recall how any, anybody could try to justify this stuff the way the Americans are trying to do now. It's just, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Well, on that though, we have a question to close out because I think it's an interesting one because uh, it's one I heard on the Duran and also an opinion that I myself share, which is that we all listen to Biden's speech, the, you know, that thing where his eyes are half closed and he's moving his arms just five centimeters to the left and right every now and then. Yes, exactly, Sarah, exactly. Uh, economic sanctions. He's How about this one? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, and where he'll often say, wait, wait. Uh, but yes, beyond that, uh, beyond the funnies, um, he focused a lot more in that speech on Ukraine. And when he asked for money, he asked for four times the amount for Ukraine than he did for Israel. So here's the question. Is Biden himself and the people around him, are they actually still much more focused on Ukraine and Israel is a way for them to uh, shore up what is flagging support and interest even in the U.S. political class for Ukraine under cover of we have to help an old ally that has great beaches. <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting. I think you can look at it both ways. I think he, the main value for the American elite, for, for Blinken, for example, is that he can pick up the phone to Zelensky now and say, look, this is going to get tough. The winter's coming. You're losing territory. Your counteroffensive was a shit show. He's becoming unpopular at home, Zelensky. You know, people are voting in polls saying that they blame him for the corruption. Seventy mm -hmm. Over 78% of people blame him directly for the mismanagement of the war. Zelensky needs something. He needs something now. Uh, and I think this allows the Americans to say, look, Vlad, Brother, this is getting shit. You know, we need to sort this out. Maybe we should think, let's draw a line down the Dnester. Let's let's fucking let's let the Russians sit there for a while. Let, let's kick this down the road. Let's do a North and South Korea, whatever. You don't have to say the war's over, whatever. We can work this out, but we need this needs to go away. Because the real threat here, of course, for the American machine is number one, they haven't got the men to fight a war, ground war with Russia, China, or anybody, Iran. Because these guys, the Russians, the Chinese, and the Iranians will fight. But America has nobody to fight a war with. Seven, over 70% of people of military age in America now are not fit for service. That's according to a Pentagon report. But how are they going to fund a ground war? They'll run out of missiles. You know, the Iranians could sink an American aircraft carrier. People go, oh, they could never have. They could do it. They could do it. Of course they could. Why, why, why wouldn't they be able to? The Iranians are underestimated. And warfare has changed inexorably. The, the modern battlefield is completely different. It's not as reliant on heavy weapons as it used to be, particularly in a confined space like Gaza. So that's why they haven't invaded. But the point is, this gives the Americans options that they had none of prior to the 7th of October. The Americans had no options but to keep hoping the Russians would fuck up. The only option they had in Ukraine was, geez, I hope Putin actually does get a fucking heart attack. Or, you know, mm -hmm. maybe he will. Uh, get COVID and die, or maybe, you know, please, something. They were hoping for something. So there was a lot of people hoping for something to happen. And it happened without anybody noticing. I mean, I mean, this is this is my point. 
this gives the Americans wriggle room in Ukraine. They can leverage this against Zelensky, who's becoming increasingly angry and a, a difficult dog to handle. He's not happy on the lead, Zelensky. You know, the Americans are teeing Zelensky up for the 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 the, the guy that wouldn't uh, listen. You know, he wouldn't listen. We told him not to have this counteroffensive. We told him to get out of the tanks and walk across the minefields and die like a good boy. But instead, he drove our tanks over. How dare you? Why didn't you just walk over the minefields like we told you? So you're getting this kind of narrative. You got the polls telling Zelensky, you know, you're like a drowning man. What, what are you doing? Uh, things that we would have thought were completely uncounterable, you know, a, a, a year ago. There was there, it was a pseudo religious devotion to Ukraine. Now the Americans have an option. They can say to Zelensky, I think this is a signal that was sent. They shipped uh, a relatively small shipment of 155 mil uh, artillery shells into Israel, which had originally been taken from Israel to send yep. to Ukraine. They've sent yep. them back. That's not about logistics or um, on the battlefield. It's so irrelevant. That's a signal to Zelensky, mm-hmm. a signal yeah. to Netanyahu. We will help you, but it's also to, to Zelensky. And it's saying to Zelensky, listen, pal, we we we're in charge. We decide which uh, uh, cup that's shaken under our nose we throw the money into. And you're just one of the fucking beggars, brother. That's that's how they're. This this is the view. So I believe that what it does do it gives the Americans a option to leverage Israel against Ukraine and vice versa. Remember, they could say, "Oh, the Russians are now advancing." That's because we took our eye off the ball. The Russians are now taking Avdivka. Shit, the Russians are this. The Russians are that. The Chinese are now going to take. Uh, Taiwan. So, you know, it allows them to leverage all of their uh, their proxies against each other. Uh, mm-hmm. And it sort of kind of reminds me of something they talked about in Hitler's time called work towards the Fuhrer, where everyone was advised to be, you know, aggressively competitive in getting the attention of Hitler. And he saw that as a way of uh, getting the best out of his uh, his top management team, if you like. And I think the same thing could happen here. The Americans have been hoping something would happen to allow them to license some sort of deceleration or just tap Zelensky on the shoulder and say, look, are you going to call the Kremlin or will we? Because this is fucked. There's no way you can win this war. Everyone here knows that. Everyone who knows anything about this conflict or Russia knows that they're not going to win the war on the battlefield against the Russians. It's impossible. Russia's getting stronger day by day and they're getting weaker and weaker. And I really think that the Americans know that. And the people who know it in America are people like Doug McGregor, and there are still some Doug McGregors in the Pentagon. There are still some very smart, educated men in the higher echelons of the U.S. military who know the U- Americans cannot fight a fucking war right now. They know they need someone else to do their fighting for them. The Israelis are too weak to fight Iran and Egypt. Uh, Egypt has a hundred, uh, like four hundred thousand men. They yeah, have a huge, about- huge army. Okay. And they, they cannot fight a war. Forget about it against Russia and China. You've seen the Russians fight now. The Russians can fight. And by the way, after this conflict is over, forget about the conflict being over. Russia has now the best combat uh, uh, experienced military on Earth. They've got thousands of fighter pilots fought in combat. They've got hundreds of thousands of men who fought frontline combat. No other army on Earth has done that except the Ukrainians. But the problem with the Ukrainians that have done it is most of them are under the ground. So this is the reality. And Americans know that. And any military analyst or a guy who studies strategy like I did realizes that this sharpens the tip of the Russian spear. The Russians have seen that they can fight a war against essentially the entire combined economic and military power of NATO and win. 
and that has really shook up the whole saleability of the NATO concept. You know, I mean, it's really important to recognize that. And who's the allies of these guys? The Chinese, the North Koreans. These guys are coming together, you know, the enemy of my enemy and all that. So America would be very foolish to engage in any kind of large scale combined arms warfare with anybody because the standing army of the United States is tiny compared to that of Russia, China or its allies combined. So this is the reality. This is the chessboard. So ending the war in Ukraine would be a very good way for America to actually concentrate its relatively small military forces into the Middle East to take on Iran. And you never even know. I mean, there could be some sort of cross-party deal where Iran is isolated. You just don't know. You just don't know what's going on in the background. But remember, these alliances are live alliances now. Russia, China, Iran. I mean, I met the Iranian uh, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, here in Russia. I met him uh, a few months back. An incredibly educated man remarkably educated, has written studies on international affairs and politics, a professor. of These are remarkably smart people. And I see the fucking clown show of Western politics. These people who are rolled out, like people like Annalena Baerbock are going to sit across the table with these people. I really despair. And this is how and why the client media, which is just another toe on the foot of this shit show uh, in, uh, in, in Europe and the pro-NATO countries, this is how this ludicrous uh, narrative is allowed to be spun, and this is how it works. It's an essential part of the war narrative. So I think that ties it all together. Yeah. Well, I think I've taken enough of your time, and I know you've taken enough of my time. So <laughs> it's a... I, I just wanted to show everybody. I'm going to have a nice drink of Coke now. Yeah, life. just Coke. No whiskey? Uh, no, no. Oh, oh, no whiskey. Whiskey. Are you trying to drive President Zelensky insane by showing that, that somewhere out there there is Coke in plentiful supply? Oh my God, and Pringles? I'm still kind of like reeling that you said you met. Go America. Iran. Go USA. 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 No, Joe Biden's advert for Pringles and Coke. You ready? <laughs> <laughs> thank you Shay we're going to go start a space to discuss this episode and annoy Shay some more eat your Pringles drink your coke click on the links Ciao. below to go follow Shay and all of his antics on like 75 different platforms on 75 different accounts <laughs> you do you have like two shows uh, the Islander an Irishman in Russia your Twitter Decentral mm. Intelligence I'm um, <laughs> Moscow mules. You have everything. You're all over. You're everywhere. It's great. And, and I want to give a quick shout out to Gouda Hegarty and to yes. Ching Ling Tong. Thank you very much for your donations. And thank you, Yara. And Gouda's a guy. Hi, Gouda. Nice to see you. Or right. to hear from you. Yeah. <laughs> you're waving for. Hi. I don't know who I'm waving at. I'm like Biden. I'm kind of waving at myself. <laughs> Who's that guy in the Who's that guy in the telly machine? Huh? Yeah. And talk about the dead lady in the audience. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I just asked everybody to have a look at the uh, at Biden uh, Trump saying he was going to beat up uh, beat this guy up. It was really good. All right, Did we'll go look that? at the Trump video. Hit like, subscribe, yeah. and share Ciao. before Aria yells at me. Tomorrow we might have an episode with Lord Miles. Tuesday we're with Marwa Osman from Lebanon, and Wednesday we're with Patrick Henningsen. Sometime next weekend we'll have Elijah Mangier and Pepe Escobar. We're busy. See you guys soon. Mm -hmm. Thanks again. Thanks so much. Bye.